Hi, everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great parts of Winnipeg history. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by our friend and producer, Nick. Hey. And today we are talking about everyone's favorite topic, City Hall. Hey. <laughs> Half of the people listening have just tuned out. <laughs> just instantly like, well, no, I'm done. I've heard enough of this. Civic architecture, <laughs> my favorite. Well, specifically, we're talking about the gingerbread City Hall, which I think is a little bit more exciting by default. Yes. I'm assuming, because Nick, you've worked with me before, and Alex, you study history, you've heard of the gingerbread City Hall before. I have indeed. Yeah, I'm I'd... assuming you've both seen it, right? I've, you've shown I mean, me not pictures. in person, because... Well, yeah, but, like, you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. How would you describe it as a building? Um. Okay, I would say that it's, like, ornate, but almost to the point of being kind of gaudy or, like, tacky. Yeah. Right? It's a lot, for sure. Yeah. Um... I don't know enough about architecture to give it a more like <laughs> Well, it looks a like better... a gingerbread house. Like, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, that's why they called it that, right? It looks like something that you're at a park for kids and you and you wander across this and it's like, oh, there's the witch's cave. Yeah. And there's the gingerbread city hall. And then there's the lion's den with a lion wearing a crown. Like, And then there's the gingerbread city hall. Yes. Yeah. In all of its splendor. So yeah, this is Winnipeg City Hall from the 1880s all the way until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It is an elaborate and very eccentric building, even like architecturally speaking, there's not really a style for it. Okay, you can maybe gonna... call it like Victorian, but Victorian's not really a style. It's an era and there's different styles within the Victorian era. Right. I was going to ask you actually, because you know a little more about that than yeah. me, if there's like a name for that kind of structure. but There's elements from a lot of different stuff put into it is the thing like... Around the 1880s in Winnipeg, you see a lot of stuff like Queen Anne Revival, which is what Dalnavert Museum is. Okay. So there's some similarities with that. But, like, the point being, this building looks like a castle designed by a man full of whimsy. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So it is a beautiful building. And it was also kind of a disaster. Okay. So, like, what most people in Winnipeg are going to be familiar with is that the building was torn down amidst this pressure to modernize Winnipeg in the 1960s. Yeah. If you tell people about this on tours, there's often strong reactions like, ah, how could they tear it down? I can't believe they do this. Especially because we have, like, I don't know if ugly is an appropriate word for the current one, but it's very, like, it's a concrete box, right? Well, it's It's, modernist, right? It's kind of an acquired taste. If you, like, understand and enjoy modernism, City Hall's kind of cool. Yeah, I actually kind of like it. I've come around on it since, like, working more and, like, learning more about architecture. Yeah. I'm okay with it as a building. But it lacks something of the instant awe effect of the old one. Right. For sure. So if all you see is like the before and after, it's kind of baffling. Like, oh, why would they do that? Yeah. But I think what might help people to know and what's really interesting about it is that the building wasn't great from the get-go and it caused (laughs) like a significant amount of scandal during its construction in the 1880s. And that's what we're talking about today. Excellent. And uh, petty city politics is always my wheelhouse. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So the Gingerbread City Hall is actually Winnipeg's second city hall. People tend to forget about the first one for fairly obvious reasons. (laughs) So, like, whatever you think about our new city hall, or even after all of this about the gingerbread city hall, the first city hall in Winnipeg is the worst. (laughs) So, construction's completed in March of 1876. Hopes are high. People are excited. Within a month, the building is falling apart. Oh, no. So, the thing is, they use poor construction materials. The Free Press uh, sarcastically said the concrete in the cellar was found to have the same solidity as the Red River in the (laughs) month of May. The other issue is that they built it on the bed of a former creek they had just filled in. Oh. And what that means is the ground was not stable. Yeah. City Hall began to shift and the foundations began to crack. Not great. So, like, 
after a decade, the building is propped up on stilts. One of the only pictures you can see it being held up on all sides. So in 1883, a decade after Winnipeg becomes a city, there is a call for tenders out for a new city hall. And this time it's going to be a better one. This time it's not going to fall down. That is the goal. So the call for tenders goes out in the summer of 1883. That's basically asking for architects to submit their proposals. Mm -hmm. And... The budget for it was a huge debate in council, ranging okay. between 80000 to 120000 mm -hmm. But when they put the call out in June, it's 80000 Okay. And how much is that today? Do you know? I do not know. Okay. It's is, tough is that to... lots? Yeah, it's okay. a fair amount. The city didn't have a lot of money in the 1880s yet. Right. We were still, like, a couple thousand people max. So, right. like, there's not a lot of money for civic expenditures. So Gravel roads and shacks, mostly. Yeah. So, like, spending 120000 would be a, like, ludicrous amount. Right. Especially when you have other things to fund, like roads. Yeah. Because there weren't paved roads in Winnipeg yet. That was a big thing they yeah. were trying to do at the time was <laughs> pave everything because it was dirt. Uh, I think it was back in, maybe in the Prohibition episode, we talked about just, like, how gross Winnipeg was at that yeah. time. So, like, there's other things to spend money on besides a new city. It's, uh, I just did a quick calculation, sorry. It's yeah. over $2 million. Okay. So, yeah, that's, like, yeah, that's a pretty significant amount. It's a worthwhile amount to fight over, yeah. for sure. Thank you, Nick. Yep. And issues begin, actually, with the call for tenders. So the deadline is August. It's sent out in June. Okay. You have three months to design a building. Oh, wow. That's Yikes. crazy. Yeah. That's way too little time. And to submit a design, you have to pay a deposit of $500 that would be forfeited if the plans exceeded the sum named by the success successful architect. Oh. It's a liquidated deposit. Okay. So, like, you're basically paying the city $500. Right. Huh. And there's no guarantee that if you win the design contest, you will be the architect hired to see the building through. Oh. So you could win. They would pay you your money, and they would just bring in a different guy to finish it. Okay. Which I guess would not be ideal. Not ideal. And there was also a requirement early on in the process that you'd have, a, have to have a contractor signed on to work as well. Mm -hmm. In three months is not enough time to find a contractor, do the budget, do the designs, and figure everything out. Well, especially in a city of, like, 2,000 people. Yeah. In, yeah. It is... A crazy short amount of time. So actually, a number of architects actually get together at the uh, Board of Trade in late June and pass a number of motions basically saying that this call for tenders doesn't work here. Are the changes we need to see, mostly stuff about like money and commission and making mm -hmm. sure that they can actually finish the building once they're done. Right. And actually, City Council agrees to the changes okay. after some significant discussion. And they wind up sort of going more through like the plans and what they need for City Council. So the building... Um, from its conception, it's going to include a council chamber, mm -hmm. some side rooms, a room for the mayor, two for council, and two rooms for the chamberlain. Generally speaking, when they call for two rooms, one is a public room and one is a private office. Okay. So on top of that, the engineer has four rooms, one public, one private, one for an assistant in a drawing room. Huh. The city collector has a long room. There are also rooms for assessors, health licenses, fire inspectors, electricians, a public library, a storeroom, a caretaker's room. The caretaker had six rooms, all in all. What? Why does the caretaker have that many? They're doing a lot of work, probably. I thought four for the engineer was a lot. <laughs> so the building's supposed to have 33 rooms total. Okay. And the cost cannot exceed $80,000. Right. There was also additionally a plan to include a 1,200-seat uh, auditorium, mm -hmm. which they then were like, well, we can't do that with the budget. So that's, that's scrapped, like, it's added and then removed right. very, very quickly. I mean, that's a ton of space. Yeah. I've never seen that many people at a city <laughs> council meeting. No, in... An auditorium wouldn't be the same as the council room. Oh, okay. So then what's the auditorium for? It would be more used for, like, events and hearings and stuff. Okay. So, like, All the right. original city hall also had a theater in it. Okay. And then huh. 
I they guess, were civic, civic events or whatever. Yeah, basically. Sure. But that winds up not happening because they can't afford to keep it in. Right. And things are quiet in 1883 as architects have to work very, very quickly to get plans in. Eventually, seven submit by August. And by what the free press says, they're all pretty good designs. The first four who submit aren't very interesting. They didn't do a whole lot. They were like steam heaters in the right. city who submitted design and then lost and then don't really reappear again, okay. as far as I can tell. <laughs> But the three finalists are uh, William Harris, who was born in Boodle, England. Okay. Raised in PEI. And he actually apprenticed as an architect there. He designed a Beaconsfield, which is actually the home of the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation today. Oh, cool. So this building is still around. He comes to Winnipeg in 1882 after a slowdown in PEI. And he's pretty new on the scene in Winnipeg at the time. This is like a year into his career in the city. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty big deal for him if he gets this. There's also James Chisholm, who is an Ontario architect who'd been working with the CPR for a number of years. He worked in St. Paul in Wisconsin and then came back to Winnipeg a little bit later on, mm -hmm. too. So, like, he's around a lot. And then, finally, there is Barber and Barber. Okay. So, Barber and Barber is also a new firm. It's a joint firm between Charles and his brother, Earl. Mm -hmm. But Charles had been working as an architect in Winnipeg since around 1876, and Earl had actually first worked as one of his draftsmen, which okay. means he would draw the designs. Right. And then... By 1883, Charles Barber had designed a number of schools in the city from, like, the 1870s all the way to the early 1880s he'd been working. He was weirdly a founder of the United Temperance Benevolent and Literary Association. So he's pro-temperance. And literature. Yep. <laughs> he marries Sarah Allison in 1878, and then he works with a James Bowes in 1881 and 1882, and then they replace Bowes with okay. his brother. Oh. So this is also a new firm. Yeah. Come 1883. So it's some relatively new architects competing for this on the scene. And like, are there buildings that they made that are still around? Uh, Barber and Barber, yes. Chisholm did a number of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so James Chisholm designed, it's a, a school on Ellen Street. He did the Granite Curling Club, the Marlboro Hotel. Oh, yeah. Right. A number cool. of like hotels. Yeah. So like his buildings are still kind of around. Barber and Barber designed the police headquarters that are just sort of north of City Hall. Okay, yeah, yeah. They're now part of Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And they did one of the buildings in what is now Road River College. Okay. On Princess Street. W.C. Harris doesn't do too much because he came to Winnipeg at a bad time. Yeah. So, like, they will do cooler things later on, but this is early days. Right. And after all of this, Barbara and Barbara win first place. Harris comes in second, and Chisholm takes third. And then following this, Council's a second debate about accepting Barbara's plans. Oh. Like, they look at the plans, they accept them, they're like, well, actually, could, could he do this for 80000 We're not so sure. Oh. Right. So they're already like, eh, maybe. And apparently there have been some changes to the plan to account for, like, gas fixtures in the building that they weren't sure they could accommodate. Yeah. And there's this big debate about who to award the contract to. Mm hmm And they vote, and it ties. Oh. For and against. Okay. So the decision is now up to the mayor. Mm -hmm. Our mayor in 1883 is Alexander McMicken, who had worked as a banker in the city since about 1871. Mm -hmm. Before that, though, he had worked for Canada's first secret service with oh. his father. Huh. Specifically to counter raids from Confederate soldiers and Fenians. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So there are, in the 1860s, some rumors that Confederate soldiers are going to try and invade Canada. And there were accounts of Confederate soldiers okay. going into Ontario and trying to recruit people from small Ontario towns and then lure them back across the border. Okay. Okay. So 
weird. This is that's, th- I feel like that's an episode on its own. It's not really Manitoba based. <laughs> oh yeah, like, fair enough. It's Ontario. Alexander McMicken does that for a bit and then comes to Winnipeg, becomes a banker, and becomes the mayor later. Right. But there's a very weird backstory where he's like part. He's a secret agent. I I didn't know that we had a secret service. Yeah. Um. He went undercover throughout the states for a while as a confederate yeah to like try and get information about where raids were gonna happen weird okay yeah. so this guy's doing his own thing okay he's doing his own thing but he's the mayor in winnipeg right in a way that's relevant to us and he's not that exciting in winnipeg <laughs> in 1883 he's just a banker who is the mayor okay <laughs> so like his term's not outstanding 1883 is kind of a weird year there's a flood in 1882 which means urban expansion slowed real estate values aren't doing so well mm-hmm. but he and council agree to fund a number of new projects, and Mick Micken is the one who okays Barber and Barber's contract for City Hall. Okay. And here's where things start to really go wrong, because <laughs> not everyone's happy with this choice. Harris, who took second place, accuses the Barbers of architectural trickery. Okay. <laughs> Harris would later state that Barber was an artist truly whose canvases is that of cunning and whose tools are those of deception. Oh my goodness. So William Harris does not trust Barber. At all. Right. And the thing with boom towns, like Winnipeg, is that it's very hard to prove your credentials. Yeah. And you can just come on and maybe you can draw a nice building and no one really know what your skill set is. That's true. I mean, this was like the era of the con man. Yeah. This is like the heyday for con men. Yes. And Harris comes out really early saying that Barber is not what he seems. And Charles Barber in turn responds, though you should work like the proverbial, proverbial animal, somewhat resembling a horse, but better <laughs> fitted for the comparison of the jackass, you shall never succeed in putting yourself up with the goose quill. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So they, things haven't even gotten started yet and they're already... They haven't broke ground. They're already hurling insults. And there's already mean letters going around. <laughs> in adding insult to injury, there's a big economic depression, which means that Harris can't get work and winds up sleeping on a mattress in his office oh no and then he goes back to pei after a big fire and winds up getting work out there as well okay so he's only in winnipeg for like two years and it just goes horribly for him (laughs) then he leaves someone calls him a jackass and he leaves he's like well i'm done here and like honestly that's fair yeah i would leave i think (laughs) so something to note here when we're talking about the barbers we're mostly talking about charles his brother earl it seems to be a lot quieter and writes a lot less letters so Mm -hmm. For the most part, it's Charles Barber taking part in all of these activities. Okay. We don't hear much about the others. Yeah. He has, like, three or four other brothers lurking around the city oh. who work in, like, contracting and stuff, but they also don't come up. Okay. So there's just huh. a lot of Barbers around, but Charles is the most interesting one. Yeah. So this initial fight doesn't stop the Barbers from getting the job, and then the next step is to find the contractor and hire them. She's, like, sent out another call for proposals, and they wind up hiring uh, Robert DeWar. He is one of the only ones whose budget does not exceed $80,000. Okay. So almost everyone goes over but him. So it's seeming like maybe that's just not enough money. It's seeming like. (laughs) Dramatic foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard to find out too much about DeWar. He was a contractor who worked at an office on 87 Ross Street. He um, listed himself as being available for the excavation of cellars and moving of buildings. We are prepared to execute the same at the shortest notice in most liberal terms. Okay. So... Fairly generic contractor yeah. stuff. He's just a guy. Yeah. He also, I think, was a contractor on a building called the Vanatine Block between Main Street and Lombard, and I think he curled at the oh. Granite Curling Club. So, oh. like... That's nice. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just kicking around town. So, his bid for the project said he could build City Hall for $78,000. Okay. So, like... Just squeaking in under squeaking the budget in. there. And his uh, call actually said he could actually salvage old materials from the first City Hall. 
Oh, okay. But there is a hitch. So his budget only included 1500 for old materials, and some members of Winnipeg's council were quick to point out that no matter what material was being used, it probably was going to cost more than that to find, salvage, and reuse old material. Right. That, that's what my pergola costs to make. Like, <laughs> you can't make a city hall for that. <laughs> Especially in those days. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Presumably, you're not going to have like the perfect amount of materials at the old city hall to put no, together. No, so you'll have to find hall. new old materials. It's not like Lego bricks. Where yeah, you right. Just, like <laughs> take it apart and build them into a new thing. Especially considering the state of city hall in 1883 is that the old city hall is in shambles and falling into a creek. Falling into a creek, it's cracked. There are serious safety concerns. <laughs> yeah. Like city council is not meeting in that building. Okay, they're renting out a new facility by oh, 1883 really? because okay. they can't be in there. Yeah, so. There is a pretty spirited debate with council about whether or not Dewar can afford to build it. And no one can agree on if he should get the contract or not. Uh And then Charles Barber steps in to say that City Hall can only be built with the best of brick. And then eventually Dewar does get the job. A lot of really early fighting about City Hall comes down to like contract negotiations and funding, none of which is like super unusual. There's a brief attempt to try and convince people to raise $500,000 for civic improvements, including $120,000 for City Hall. Right. This falls apart very, very quickly. And then no one on council can agree to do anything. So everything is pushed back until the next election. Okay. And this doesn't take as long as you might think. Uh, Elections in Winnipeg were annual, not like every four years. So it was a matter of waiting from like September until December. Yeah. And that's about it. So... The civic election happens in January of 1884. Alexander McMickens voted out, and he is replaced by Alexander Logan. Uh, Logan's not very interesting. He was mayor during a rough year. So, like, the funniest thing I found comes from the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, which sums him up as he was neither an outstanding man nor an exceptional mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Yeah. Okay. And under Logan's administration, there's still months of fighting about contracts. Yeah. And then finally, construction begins in May. At this point, the Barbers are getting a 4% commission on the project, so it's part of their budget. They get 4% of it. Yeah. And once they begin to dig, they hit a snag Uh again. So the initial plan is to build City Hall directly alongside Main Street, kind of where the current City Hall is today. Mm -hmm. And if you've been to the current City Hall, there is like a garden in front of it before you get to the actual building itself. The plan was to have the building directly on the sidewalk. Okay. But when they start to dig, they find a bottomless pit of clay. Oh, no. So, and they didn't think to, like, check that out a little bit before, like, when they were scouting out the space? No. Okay. So, apparently, there used to be a bog there that just no one was aware of. <laughs> like, their first one already fell into a creek bed. Maybe check the second spot. <laughs> no, we're just going to blindly <laughs> dig and see what happens. It's in a different spot. Surely there won't be problems again. So, one report sums it up as, Unknown to the architects and contractors, the spot where the building was being erected was once a coulee. Nature took a freak there, and the blue clay made a deep dip. <laughs> Nature took, took a, a freak. freak. Okay. So, which is how we should describe all strange things in nature from now That's on, I any think. anytime it rains. Nature <laughs> took a freak. Who knows? So, the biggest issue comes that, like, no one knows how deep the pit is. The only way to find out is to keep digging. Right. And then, Barber suggests moving the building 16 feet back. And then no one knows how much that will cost, because they've already started to dig. Oh, right. Okay. And then Robert DeWar guesses it might be $400. No one really knows. It's kind of up in the air. And it's at this point that the city's building inspector, Thomas Fogg, gets involved. Fogg worked for the CPR for a while. He'd been with the city since 1883. And he believed that Barber should just dig 
until they hit solid ground. <laughs> oh boy, that might take a while. Yep. So, who knows if that would work or not. Yeah. But what comes out immediately is that Fog and Barber don't like each other. Well, I can only imagine that being a building inspector in early Winnipeg is a nightmarish job. <laughs> I can only imagine, especially when you're fighting with people who are, like, so quick to write angry letters yeah. to you about nothing. <laughs> so, like, there is tension between them from the get-go. Okay. To the point where a city councillor actually brings this to council, being like, these two guys hate each other. Right. This might be an issue. Like, they cannot work together. Yeah. And, like, the gist of what they fight about is mostly construction materials, but it really comes down to who is supposed to be in charge. Oh, okay. So... In Thomas Fogg's opinion, he answered to the city, not the architect. He was there to reflect the city's interests, mm -hmm. and that was it. Okay. Barber, meanwhile, felt that Fogg answered to him, and that he should have the power to hire and fire the building inspector. Well! You can see the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there might be a conflict of interest there. Yeah. Okay. So they wind up keeping Fogg on, basically as a supervisor for the city hall project, to keep an eye on Barber. Right. And there might be a reason for this. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of, like, public reporting on this, but at this point in time, Barber had worked for the city before on the old police quarters on uh, William. Mm-hmm. So the, or on James Street. It's 223 James Street. It's still there. So the police courts is built in 1883. It's a standard Barber project, and it's got a lot of elaborate detail. But around the same time as the clay pit is discovered, contractors involved in the police court are saying that Barber isn't paying them. Oh. So there's already accounts that something weird is going on at the police court. And once the building is constructed, there are some strange issues with it. Hmm. Like the bars in the police court were so weak that you could just pull them apart and step through. <laughs> I can foresee that being an issue, yes. Yeah. So, like, they couldn't prove anything and the city couldn't say anything, but they hired Fogg to keep an eye on Barber. So he okay. got a rate of $5 a day. Just to keep an eye on Barber. Huh. And you can see why Barber might have been kind of chafing at that, because that's a lot more restriction <laughs> than you might normally get on a project. Right. Is this angry guy watching you and being like, stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> and for context here, um, minimum wage in Manitoba in 1921 is $4 a day. Okay. Barber's our fog is making that more than that, like, 40 years earlier. Right. It's good pay. Yeah. Okay. And... Around the same time as all of this is happening, when they encountered the hole, Robert DeWar starts to get concerned about his paycheck. For reasons that are very unclear, like, within a month of starting, he visits a law firm to try and figure out specifics of his contract. Oh, weird. Like, he's already getting inklings that, like... Something is not right. Right. So the main concern was, again, the clay pit. Mm -hmm. So, like, the specifications in the plans is they're going to dig to seven feet and then put the foundations in. Mm -hmm. And what Dewar was wondering is if he digs more than seven feet, will he be compensated for that labor? Okay. And what will happen? Uh-huh. Because they don't really know how deep they have to dig yet. And Barbara's response is that generally, when you dig in Winnipeg, it only takes about seven feet to hit solid clay. That's been the practice everywhere else in the city, barring this freakish clay pit they found. <laughs> <laughs> and then what Barbara says is that if they have to dig deeper, the city will cover the costs. And then the city's lawyer begrudgingly agrees to this because Barber had said they would, and he might not have agreed so otherwise. Oh, boy. So no one's really getting along. Construction sort of trucks along a little bit. They move the building back 16 feet. And then on May 5th, Thomas Fogg submits a report to the city about poor construction materials. And it makes the paper with the headline, Inspector Fogg Condemns City Hall Material. So We're he... three months in, just for context here. This is three months, and it's already Did he go bad. straight to the press, or he went to City Hall? He went to City Hall, oh, okay. but the paper kept a close eye on this right. and then tended to like make things a little more exciting. Of course. Yeah. 
but it's a three-page report. Wow. Okay. Yeah, with like alleged flaws and everything from the wood to the stone to the brickwork. According to Fogg, there's just like wood sitting on the site that should be rejected. The person who accepted this wood did not know much about oak timber. <laughs> And he also said the bricks were weak, the stone wasn't cut properly, and he also suggested that someone had to drain the foundation, because Winnipeg is quite damp, especially in the spring and the summer. Okay. And if you don't yeah. drain it, you'll get water in the cellar, and that's not good. Yeah. And then uh, Barber doesn't react well. I, I bet. I bet. <laughs> so, um, on May 7th, there is a suggestion from council to hire on another architect, another contractor, and another engineer to inspect the plans. And they allow Barber to hire on his own architect to do the same. Okay. And then Weird. one counselor says he dislikes the idea because he didn't trust architects to be objective because they're all prejudiced against each other. Yeah. Huh. So this one, he's ignored. And they hire on AP Cameron, W.W. Banning, and they bring on the city engineer. Um, W.W. Banning's son, who has the exact same name as him, is murdered in Washington in 1899, <laughs> which caused significant confusion in my research because I thought that he was the guy that was uh, murdered. Yes. I was texting you about this, yeah. but I was very confused what was going on. <laughs> but W.W. Banning is not murdered. Okay, he was not murdered. But His he son did, was. <laughs> but he did inspect a building. He did inspect a building, and it's not as exciting. Because what they come up with is that some of the material on the site is bad. Okay. But there is no guarantee that they're going to put it into the building. Oh, so it's just, like, sitting at it's the It's just site. laying there. And, like, it's probably not uncommon to have you order, like, a bunch of wood and then some comes in and it's like, well, we can't use this. Okay, and Charles Barber presumably is being like, oh, no, no, we're totally not going to use the bad yeah. wood. Yeah, exactly. He's like, well, there's no guarantee we're going to use this. You yeah. can't say that. So, uh, Barber's architect, Walter Moberly, also agrees with this. And then construction continues. And then by mid-June, it's revealed that Charles and Earl Barber have still not been paid. Oh. They did not receive the prize money. Huh. And this is going to be an issue for the entire summer. So, like, the city has not paid them. The city has not paid them. Okay. So, one point at one point, the barber suggests getting paid half now and half later because they know the city can't afford to pay them the full amount. Right. And then they also try and push for a bit more commission. They wanted 4.5% and not 4 But from this point onward, just assume that at any given moment, the barbers are desperately trying to get paid by the city. Oh, jeez. And it's not working. <laughs> Well, that makes me a little more sympathetic to their whole using bad materials thing. Yeah, like, it's not it's not going well for anyone involved. No. And it's probably not going to get better, <laughs> is what I'm going to say. So, by mid-June, also, Thomas Fogg comes back and agrees to give a tour to city council. Only uh, Mayor Logan and an alderman show up, an alderman oh. being a counselor. Oh, I've given tours like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> But Fogg's tour is a tour of the construction site, pointing out everything that is wrong with the material. Okay. So, like, the counselor on site can break a brick with his finger. Oh, wow. Not great. Yep. And at one point, Charles Barber shows up, because he is, of course, on site. And then starts really laying into Fogg. According to the papers, foul language was even oh, used. No. <laughs> and uh, Barber accuses Fogg of being a railroad narvy. Oh, what does that mean? I do not know. Okay. Um, to be fair, I would be pissed if someone like showed up at my building. I like came to work and someone was there like showing with the up. With the mayor being like, look at this like, bad job. Look, yeah, look what a bad job Alex is doing. I'd be, I'd probably be mad. Would you also call them a railroad narvy? I Well, probably not that specifically. <laughs> <laughs> so Fogg retaliates this by saying he had not served his time to design mansard roofs for one-story cottages. Okay. 
This is there's nothing in between in the free press report of the insults. Huh. So I don't know what either of these things really mean. <laughs> we can only assume it's like the Tribune Trumps where there's like some context missing. Yeah. And it was really funny at the time. time. <laughs> like presumably Fogg doesn't want to design like small buildings. Right. And Barber saying that he's a stooge for the railroad. Oh, but yeah, like, he had worked for, for the CPR. For so CPR. I guess Railroad Narvi. Okay. So a day after the tour, Fogg submits another report to council saying the material going into the building is bad. Okay. So what he had said that they wouldn't be using is now going in. And then the city engineer confirms that the stonework's not ideal. It should have been done differently. And that they need to do compression tests on the brick to make sure it can withstand the weight of the building itself. What is is a compression test what it sounds like? You just like press the br- the brick really hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to use actual machinery to do it because you have to see how much weight it can withstand. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because if you're stacking a bunch of brick onto each other, you have to support the weight of the entire building. Right. So if it cracks under like a hundred pounds, it's not gonna be very Probably effective not at supporting hold your building. Up the rest of the wall. So they do actually wind up getting uh uh the brick tests done at the CPR stockyards. And then Fogg starts to complain again, and this time Council suggests that maybe Fogg try talking to Barber first about these issues. You know what? I, Having been a union steward, I feel like I've been in that position where I'm like, yes, your concerns are valid. Maybe you should talk to the person. <laughs> yeah. The thing is that Barber doesn't seem to want to do that either. Oh, fair. So he sends a letter to Council on July 14th demanding an investigation to prove they are telling the truth about the building material situation. They feel as though they've been slandered and that we are entitled to the same privileges that accorded to even criminals on trial, the right to self-defense. <laughs> Should we let Samson do... Oh, he's done his... Uh... He got it. He's out. Sorry, yeah. Samson is scratch. being busy tonight. My dog, Samson. He's, he's keeping his company. He's being, he's being very cute, though. So it's... <laughs> he's a good little co-host. <laughs> he's really listening to you, too. It's really cute. <laughs> he really wants to learn about this building scandal. It's very important that he does. I don't think you're an official podcaster until your dog or cat or emu or something. Is... <laughs> like disrupts yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the recording. So yeah, Barbara and Barbara are taking this really seriously. They're very offended and they send a follow-up letter a few days later that opens with, Gentlemen, we regret the necessity for troubling you with an explanatory letter concerning the new civic office building. And as much as we consider the resolution appointing a special arbitration committee as final and settlement of annoying reports from Mr. Fogg. <laughs> It's at this point that a councilman, George Ham, suggests firing everyone. <laughs> you know, I kind of love that. Like, you can tell he just got fed up with all of it, eh? He was it was just like, like, nope. Like, think about this, though. This is unsalvageable. Construction started in April. Yeah. It is July. Oh, my this God. This is the point to which it has deteriorated. We're only talking, like, four months. At this point, like, let's just knock down what they built already and start anew. It seems like they haven't built much, though, because they have to move the building back, right? So they've right. done the 16 feet back. They're starting with the brick and the stone foundation. They're not still trying to dig through the clay, are they? No, they moved the building they've back. They've given up on that. <laughs> yeah, it didn't seem worth it, because you don't know how deep it's going to go. Uh, George Ham is an interesting guy, also. He... Uh, was actually a former reporter for the Free Press and a founder of the Tribune. Oh. And was known for his slouched hat, ill-fitting suit, and brilliant wit. <laughs> and apparently his short temper on council because he is very done with everyone very quickly. That all sounds like a perfect Tribune reporter. It really does, doesn't it? It's just this guy who's not, like, having a good time. No. He's got a lot of big opinions. With a slouchy hat. Love it. Yeah. But council does talk about firing Barbara and Barbara at this huh. point. 
The only reason they don't is they're scared about a lawsuit. Right. I guess they signed a contract. Well, also, they still haven't paid them. Oh, they haven't paid them still? I forgot. So, like, they haven't paid them. They can't fire them until they've been paid. They're barely <laughs> employing them. <laughs> At this point, it's volunteer work that no one's happy about. Yeah. <laughs> so, like... George Hamm suggests that maybe they just pay them 5% commission and then, like, get rid of the fee that mm-hmm. they still owe them. And then council votes and agrees to pay them 4%, the amount initially <laughs> agreed on. Good thing they spent all the time on that. I've been in meetings like that before. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of talking, a lot of nothing happening mm. is the incredible thing about all of this. But then, on July 17th, in the midst of all of this, the cornerstone for City Hall is laid. It's basically the ceremonial foundation brick they put in to be like, the construction's begun and we're excited. Uh It's a big thing. So, the free press writing about this says, three new City Halls within ten years is a good record. (laughs) The first one's in the old courthouse. They're counting that one. Yeah. Um, and if we're not known that the first one tum- that one tumbled down, the city might receive more credit abroad than we are entitled to. <laughs> so inside the cornerstone, there's a little hollow to place something like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. And inside of it, they place like copies of papers, voters list, coinage, pictures of council, and a bottle of preserved grasshoppers. What? <laughs> there was that big thing with the locusts in the 1800s. Yeah. Was it because of that? Yeah. So grasshoppers have been included in the cornerstone for both the first official and the second city hall because huh. they destroy wheat. Yes. And there had been a big issue with grasshoppers just destroying wheat. That's an odd thing to be like, this is what we want to remember. Uh, the first city hall also included a piece of decimated wheat from one of the grasshoppers. <laughs> So we were thinking a lot about the, the a lot about the grain and grasshoppers. There is a picture of these online with the city archives, so you can see a picture of the grasshopper okay. they put into the casket. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and there's also a number of speeches at the event. The first comes from um, a Captain Scott. That's very brief, but he does note that Scott trusted in the days that the days of erecting bad buildings had passed away, oh. and that solid buildings would be built in the future. <laughs> but, you know what? He forgot to knock on wood. Is the issue. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of other speeches, but none are as funny and, like, <laughs> wrong as Aged that one. so poorly. <laughs> Especially considering that there are reports that come in a month later saying that they did not drain the site. There is now water in the cellar. No. <laughs> and then Fogg also says he has some concerns about the roof. Okay. So, yeah. like, things aren't going well. It no. seems like probably the city is going to erect at least one more bad building. Yeah. And, like, on both ends, too. The roof is bad. The cellar's bad. Like, top to bottom. It's not working. <laughs> yeah. The brick in the middle's off. Like, <laughs> So these things are dealt with. And then on October 11th, Robert DeWar begins encountering financial diff- difficulties and all work stops. Oh, no. He can no longer pay his workers. Okay. Has and then, he been being paid? Well, he's been theoretically been being paid by the barbers. But they're who are not, not being, being paid. paid. Okay. So you can see where this is becoming an issue that no one's making money and no one can pay anyone. Yeah. So then a couple days after this, Dewar steps back from the project and quits. Okay. So he had been struggling financially for about a year, though it's not quite sure where this originates. According to the Bank of Nova Scotia, the project had run into overdrafts, and they'd asked Dewar for a collateral note of $5,000 that he hadn't been able to afford. No. Yeah. And then the bank manager didn't think it was explicitly Barber's fault. Uh, He said, as the matter now stands, somebody has swindled us out of $10,000 during the past three weeks. I cannot say that Mr. Dewar did it. Oh. So like that's the, a very weird way for a bank to put something. Yeah, they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, some money has been taken. They can't figure out where it's gone huh. or who would have taken it. And Thomas Fogg, for what's worth, also believes that Dewar wasn't doing it, or believes that Dewar was doing his best, and that's the project that's the issue. Like, it's, okay, yeah, the constraints are too much. You can't do it for that little. Yeah, 
obviously they're gonna start cutting corners and it might be Barbara's bad estimates for the cost of the building that does Dewar in. And apparently Dewar did accept the contract at a rate that was agreed on as too low by almost everyone in the city. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like everyone knows that every construction project ever goes over budget. So if yeah. he's already coming in, like, oh, it's going to cost $79,000. It's going to be more, yeah. yeah. So, like, Dewar himself would admit the only way he could profit from the project was to do dishonest work, which he didn't want to do. Mm. Uh, which is also um, particularly interesting because a month later, Dewar reports to council that... He'd actually initially put his bid in for City Hall at higher than $80,000. Okay. It was the barbers who told him to knock it down. Oh. Saying that if he changed the number so it was lower, they would ease him ten grand and then offer up their commission to cover deficits if they encountered it. Oh, So it's the barbers who say bid low. Yeah. You'll get the job and we'll figure it out once we're there. Right. Huh. And Shady. It's not great. So according to DeWar, he makes a statement to the Winnipeg Daily Sun that Barbara was not anxious to make money out of the affair, more to make a name for himself and have the hall as an advertisement of his architectural abilities. Mm -hmm. So the claim is that Barbara says, I don't want to make a profit, I'll pay you. Right. If we run low. And then they run low, but Barbara hasn't been paid. (laughs) Yeah. And then once the contract is signed, Barbara begins to squeeze DeWar in every way possible. So they start changing the project specifications. Some cost more than others. Like, that's going to happen on any project, especially when you, like, encounter a bottomless clay pit. Right. And I guess, like, Dewar is kind of under his thumb as well if he's agreed to this kind of slightly shady thing. Yeah, like, it doesn't look good to be like, oh, well, they convinced me to knock it down a bit. Yeah. And then um, one of the bigger issues that comes out during this is that they add um, solid walls and not hollow walls to the building, so it costs more. Okay. So basically when you're building something, a hollow wall is called like a cavity wall and it's got a hollow center. It's used for insulation purposes. So okay. there'll be the exterior brick and then the interior portion, there's a gap between it. Okay. If you build a solid wall, you're using more material. Right. So by default, it costs more. Mm-hmm. So they're doing that. That might have cost about an extra $1,500. And the brick also costs more than they thought, about an extra mm-hmm. thousand. So that they, is- they couldn't just scrap it all from the old one. <laughs> no. And interestingly, by going 2500 over they hit the budget of the project on just that, right? Oh, wow. Because okay. ha- he pitched 78000 yeah. Right, yeah. So they're now so, over. Yeah. And then um, DeWar then would add, knowing the past, he has great fear for the future should the building continue under Barber and Barber's management. Uh-oh. Now, according to Barber, DeWar had never told him the estimate, only said that he might be over a little bit and was nervous about it. Huh. So... It- Barbara frames it as, like, a conversation with a friend trying to, like, ease him out of his worries. Right. Whereas Dewar frames it as, like, an active swindling attempt. Yes. And Barbara agrees to help Dewar if he would be able to look at Dewar's books. Dewar refuses. And then Barbara then provides a list of people he's worked for, saying, If I was as dishonest as Mr. Dewar's actions appear to show, that I might possibly do such things. (laughs) (laughs) So... At this point, George Ham comes back and says, something is wrong. Uh, yeah. He just contends something is not right. Uh, yeah. Because something's clearly not working. Mm-hmm. And they actually don't even fire Dewar totally. He's still kept on to kind of supervise, but just okay. he's not like paying for the labor to come in. Right. But the day he steps down, um, Augustus Ponton applies for the job. Okay. Like, and, and then gets it right yeah. away. So he works for like a stonework company. How long is this project supposed to take, by the way? It's unclear on the deadline. I don't think they're hoping, like, it could take between, like, a year to a little bit longer. But, like, I think the hope was to finish it before winter set in, in Mm -hmm. 1884. 
Right. But we're nearing the end of October at this point in the timeline, mm-hmm. and it's not quite happening yet. <laughs> and the Free Press is reporting on all of this, and they're fairly critical of Barbara and the project itself. And you have to remember that this is, like, a decade after the first city hall is built and then falls apart instantly. So there are some right. precedents to be, like, concerned yeah. about bad <laughs> civic construction projects. Yeah. So they're a little critical of Council right away, and they're critical of Barber. And Charles Barber is not happy with how the free press is talking about him. So he writes a letter to Council to complain about it. And it includes the phrase, And finally, in the matter of throwing out our, throwing our commission to the winds by throwing it into this building, I admit the crime. If it is a crime, throw away one's earnings for the sake of glory. <laughs> but do you think there was no condition attached to the proposition? Oh, boy. Yeah. So he's like, yes, I am guilty. Guilty of caring too, too much. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what he's saying. Yeah. He's- um, you know what? You know what Charles Barber reminds me of? No, what? You know, you, you see people sometimes on Twitter who, like, if anyone says anything mean about them, they will respond to it. Yeah. Like, they cannot get offline <laughs> no they cannot stop responding yes yeah he's, that. he's doing that yeah and like it wants to make him seem unstable yeah it would be weird to be like yeah i care too much about this building that's why it's not working yeah what what are you trying to say <laughs> so on november 5th city council sits down to try and figure out what has been going on right because something has gone wrong can you, like, do you have any idea what's happening? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, the building's bad. Yeah. Um, the materials are shoddy. The roof is wrong. They had to move it. It's over budget. I mean, everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. But a building is being built. Something is going up. No one likes each other either seems to be the bigger issue yeah. here. Is that, like, maybe if you could all sit down and talk. Yeah. And figure it out. But everyone seems to hate each other. Right. We're all just going to write mean letters to each other in the press. <laughs> But then also send them to council and make council like the weird mediator of yeah. our work dispute, which I'm sure is very annoying for a city trying to deal with like paving roads and building hospitals. Right. Like, please just build this thing. We're, well, theoretically <laughs> paying you to build. <laughs> but still have not been paying them. Yeah. By this point, they haven't fully been paid yet. <sighs> so uh, Augustus Ponton appears at this November 5th meeting and accuses Dewar of faking pay sheets and skimming money from the Bank of Nova Scotia. And Barbara keeps insisting that he would have helped Dewar if Dewar had just shown him his books. And then Fogg would later accuse Augustus Ponton of faking pay sheets. Huh. It's not that hard to do because you're just submitting a pay sheet being like, I paid so-and-so this amount. But if you check the rate, the rate's lower. Oh, okay. So, like, yeah. it's not too hard to fake a pay sheet oh, in this day and age. Oh, though, because then, like, you're, you're cheating your employees out of money. Yeah. So, like, they do submit pay sheets to council and there are copies of those in the archives. You can see roughly what's going on. Yeah. But I did not want to do a whole forensic accounting nope. thing for this episode because I didn't think anyone would want to listen to it and I think I would have torn my own hair out. Yeah. Or made my brother do all of the math for me and then he would have been very annoyed about it. Hey, we've interviewed my dad already. We could interview your brother. <laughs> about forensic accounting? Yeah. He'd love it, I'm sure. So after all of this, Winnipeg's council expressed the opinion that a swindle had been perpetrated somewhere, okay. but where it was hard to locate. Well, it might be everywhere. (laughs) I think it might be everywhere. So they suspend Barbara for a week and hire on an architect named Charles Wheeler to come and look into the matter. Oh, I've heard of Charles Wheeler. Yeah, he's fairly well known. So um, Barbara actually gives Wheeler his plans for the building. Although uh, one of Wheeler's sons would later testify that he overheard Barbara asking his dad to go easy on him. (laughs) (laughs) So Wheeler 
1884 is mostly known for building the Holy Trinity Church on Smith Street. Okay. But he'd worked as an architect for 20 years in Britain in a variety of roles. He'd been in Winnipeg since 1882. And he was mostly known locally at this time through his music. He was the bass soloist at the church as well. Oh, that's nice. But he was um, an arts critic for the papers in 1883. He would build Dalnavert later on. Oh, that's probably why I know his yeah. name. So, like, he's mostly at this point known for being a musician, but mm-hmm. he is a well-trained and well-established architect. Okay. So he's a good guy to hire for the project, but he's still also a new architect locally in 1884, much right. like everyone else. Yeah. And so also, it's hard to be an old old architect in the city that's, like, 10 years old. That's true. I wonder also <laughs> if it would be hard to feel like you have the sway to do anything about a project that's clearly going wrong. Yeah, exactly. So two days after he's hired, Wheeler submits a report surmising that Fogg had missed some details when he was complaining, saying that Barbara's estimates were mostly fair. Okay. So Wheeler is at first on Barbara's side. Mm-hmm. And the Barbara seemed to be in the clear until a lawyer from the Bank of Nova Scotia interrupts a council meeting to declare that they have valuable information and evidence <gasps> of great fraud. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he interrupts a council <laughs> meeting? meeting to declare fraud, essentially. Whoa. He's then fired. A few days later. Wait, who is? The lawyer. that The lawyer is? The lawyer is fired from the Bank of Nova Scotia a few oh, days later. What? Well, to be fair, that is probably not the ordinary, like... <laughs> it's probably not the course the bank wanted them no, to No, that's take. probably not, not the way that you report fraud. <laughs> you don't just declare, I have evidence of it. <laughs> but like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> so yeah, this guy gets let go. And despite all of that, city council agrees to meet and hear what the bank thinks is happening. And it's worth noting that a bit later on, there's a pamphlet published to sort of sum up what's gone wrong with City Hall. Uh-huh. And the pamphlet surmises this meeting as a profound sensation was expected. And it was hinted that Barber and Barber and Ponton and a great many others would be arrested and sent straight to jail without benefit of a clergy, judge, or jury. <laughs> okay. So, like, people... I don't know that that's how that happens, but sure. No, but they thought, like, something was going to come out of this. Right. But then, it turned out to be a huge fizzle. Oh. The bank didn't have anything. How disappointing would that be if you went into a place, interrupted their council meeting, declared fraud, and then just like nothing happened? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine like, presumably there were reporters on this who were like, yeah, exciting. Yeah. This is a big story. And then you turn up to the meeting and they're like, well, got nothing, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but then like, it's unclear if like the bank was trying to like hide a mistake they had made. Okay. And yeah. And that's why they fired him or like what had gone on there. There's no way to know. Yeah. It's just another weird, confusing blip in this very confusing huh. thing. Yeah. It's like, who knows? Who knows what was happening? But it's clear that, like, the public thinks that something is wrong. Right. And that probably Barbara and Barbara were up to something shady. Mm-hmm. If they're all expecting them to be whipped off to jail without a trial. Mm-hmm. But no one can figure out what's going on. Is the gist of this? It's just mass confusion. Yeah. Everyone's trying to figure out where the swindle is coming from. No one knows. And then on um, November 17th, Charles Wheeler submits a new report, this time on the heating system for the building. And I'm not going to talk about the specifics of it. I don't think anyone cares about how a building from 1884 was proposed building, to be heating. Building, heating, building, <laughs> heating. Everyone cares so much. That's funny. At one of my previous museum jobs, um, I didn't bother to learn any of the construction stuff because I figured no one would ever ask. And then someone yeah. did ask. And I was like, oh, oh no, I cannot tell you. No, I mean, I know, like, some base-level stuff about, like, construction, but, I mean, the gist of it, as far as I can figure out, is that Wheeler thought that Barber had ordered too much metal for the pipes. Okay. And couldn't figure out, like, he ordered way too much. Right. And he's like, what are you doing Why would you that? need that much steel? Like, that's insane. Right. So, uh, this is part of what Wheeler's report had to say. I'm going to cut out the specification bits so that no one's going to understand. Okay. 
To the market committee of the city council, gentlemen, I have the honor of presenting the following report considering the heating and plumbing arrangements for the civic offices prepared by your architect, C.A. Barber. I commence, in bearing in mind the old saying, we are none of us infallible, I was prepared to overlook minor fault and trivial detail, but I confess I began to get startled after reading the fourth clause of the specification. Here it is. Should any deficiency exist in either the drawings or the specifications of any portion of the work herein described, the architects above named will supply such deficiency and the contractor will be found to execute their orders as part of the contract. I have no hesitation in reporting to you that no architect who values his own reputation would have inserted the clause such as above. The plain meaning is that the contractor is to pay heavily for the architect's blunders, eventually ending in the city having to bear the whole cost. Hmm. So basically that if the barbers make a mistake, it's up to Dwar or Ponton to financially cover the cost of that design flaw. Right. Yeah, why would, I mean, why would the contractor agree to that? Like, hey, if the architect made a mistake, you guys have to cover it. I mean, it depends on how quickly they read it, if, like, it was hidden in something yeah. else, or, huh. like, how much, if they had a lawyer with them. Like, Dewar goes to a lawyer pretty much immediately, right? Like, yeah. I think he knew something was wrong pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And then Wheeler sends the rest of the letter going through the entire contract for the heating and plumbing specifically and points out a number of the perceived flaws, noting that an unscrupulous person, if not closely watched, would take every advantage of the many loopholes they presented. Hmm. And, yeah, the issue is there's probably too much piping. According to Wheeler, there's so much piping and go around the entire civic office 95 times <laughs> and form a shot-proof bulwark to protect Alderman in case of a riot. Wow. <laughs> he then calls it a great blunder and notes that <laughs> most of Winnipeg's steam fitters agree that Barbara's plan is bad. So does he think at this point that um, it's just a mistake and, like, they screwed up in order too much or that it's fraudulent? Well, I think Wheeler thinks it's fraudulent because at yeah. the start he's like, well, I was willing to, like, forgive some minor, like, faults, but yeah. now I'm getting suspicious because what's coming out is that, like, there's weird contract loopholes, the yeah. material is strange, like... But, like, why would you order too much steel? What's the point? Um, if the city's going to cover the cost, you could then repurpose that steel for other projects. Okay, Ooh. yeah. Which hmm. does occasionally happen. Right. Um, but how do you think Charles Barber responds <laughs> to all of this? Uh, does he call him a name? <laughs> he calls him a lot of things. <laughs> so Barber willingly gives his plans over, right? Thinking that Wheeler's going to give an unbiased, fair report. <laughs> And then Barber's response is mostly that he ordered a lot of piping material on purpose, and that is the standard way of doing things in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love that. Like, I, I think I'm going to have to start using that. Like, it's Vogue in New York. If you, if you say that a thing I'm doing is weird, I'm like, <laughs> excuse me, that is how they do it in New York. <laughs> but like, how are you going to prove that? Yeah. Right? Like, I guess you could telegram someone in New York to be like, do you order too much metal for your pipes? <laughs> But it's a weird thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I don't know if that's how they did things in New York, but it does seem like a thing you would say is a lie. Yeah. To be like, well, that's what they do in Paris. Yeah. Right? But um, most of the letter is just breaking down his heating specifications, none of which is interesting. But there is a fairly significant level of passive aggression in the letter. <laughs> Great. So I have uh, picked out some choice quotes for you guys. Okay. So at one point, Barbara notes, you may draw your own inference from this fact and strive to find out why Mr. Wheeler is on such friendly and confidential terms with many of our leading steam fitters. Oh, okay. So implying Wheeler is doing some colluding on the side. Uh, yeah. And then with regards to Mr. Wheeler's assurance about our very great blunder in the matter of heating surface, I am prepared to admit that a very great blunder has been committed by Mr. Wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of oh. wish these guys had Twitter. 
Right? Wouldn't they be? They would be good at it. Hashtag blunder. <laughs> it's just such a good way to end off that sentence. Like, Charles by him. <laughs> That's very much like 90s sarcasm. Right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a blunder. Not <laughs> by you. <laughs> Talk to the hand wheeler. <laughs> That's basically what he's doing. He then also notes, I assume Mr. Wheeler is competent and simple addition. Oh, oh boy. And he signs the letter. And this is the most incredible part. I hereby challenge Charles Wheeler to accept the gauge of battle or retire oh. branded a cowardly liar. Oh, wow. This is, again, over the heating of a building. Oh, right. <laughs> and then he also challenges the city to find any, any, any evidence of his wrongdoing and says he will step down if the city can prove something. Okay. I feel like maybe they have. <laughs> yeah. So Wheeler does respond to this, calling Barber a liar, and then asks that the city solicitor or lawyer can finish the work because he's found this whole ordeal disagreeable. <laughs> and past this point, counsel again debates firing Barber and Barber, but doesn't because they're worried about a lawsuit because of the pay situation. Oh my god. <laughs> and then they talk about hiring another architect to step in. This would be architect number three yeah. that they've hired to supervise this project. One counselor does speculate that maybe Charles Wheeler wants a finger in the pie and is trying to, like, collude to get Barber fired, which weird. is very weird. Because something weird is happening, and it seems fair to lay some of the yeah. blame at Barber's feet. I mean, the thing is, like, if you're always surrounded by jerks, the problem <laughs> might be with you, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, most of this seems to revolve around Barber and Barber not doing their job right, and then yeah. everything else is kind of a casualty of that. Yeah, like not that no one else here is doing weird things, <laughs> mm -hmm. but that does seem to be the sort of central issue. Yeah. So there are people in Winnipeg also saying that Barbara and Barbara should be fired. The free press says the city is foolish for allowing them to keep on because the city's also allowed Barbara to be present at all of the hearings, to okay. defend himself at all of the hearings. And just they're okay with him being a jerk to literally everyone in the project. So... The free press's opinion is that um, city council is not going to take action against Barber until after the 1885 election in January. They're mm -hmm. waiting for a new council to deal with it, essentially, is what they're doing. Oh, jeez. Because they're like, oh, we'll wait two months, then maybe they'll do something different, which, yeah. like, does still happen sometimes in council. You wait until the next council to deal with it, sure. right? But the free press ends the article with um, another slam. Um, the present council have shown themselves stupid and incapable enough oh. on many occasions, <laughs> but it is not to be credited that they are so inconceivably stupid and incapable as their course in the city hall affair would, in some ways, indicate. <laughs> Jeez. So, like, no one's coming off well here. No, because, like, you've got this, like, weird, fraudulent architect. Yeah. But then also city hall is just not doing anything about it. No, they're just sitting there being like, well, maybe something's happening. I don't know. Like they're not firing them, but also not really paying them. Well, what they're actively doing is hiring more people consistently, right? right? They run on, yeah. at this point, four to five other people to inspect the project to mix reviews. And they've been like, well, we've done our jobs. And then not changing anything. Yeah. So December of 1884 is a lot of talk about firing Barber and Barber. And they are officially dismissed on December 17th, 1884. Okay. So they're actually fired from they the project. They are fired. Yeah. And for clarity, the city had talked about this at least six times. Yeah. Oh, jeez. This building has been under construction since March of that year. And they have been almost fired for that entire duration. Like, within a month, they're like, we should let these guys go. Yeah. It takes that long. 
And shortly after they are fired, a man named George B. Brooks publishes an 84-page booklet titled Plain Facts About the City Hall. It's <laughs> inside history from the first down to the present. Interesting disclosures. Did you read the whole thing? I read the whole thing. That's Serena, <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the only source on this. Yeah. Fair so enough. the booklet compiles all of the newspaper reports, letters from council, council oh, wow. minutes, and like it tries to sort of break down the entire situation bit so by bit. Is this just like a random guy who wrote that? Well, this is what I was wondering. Okay. So there's not a whole lot I could find about him. It was one of those, I mean, the fact that his name is George Brooks is not very helpful. Yeah. It's a generic name. There are a number of farmers with that name. <laughs> but from what I managed to put together, um, George Brooks was the editor of a paper called the Winnipeg Siftings. The, um, one of our premiers, uh, Premier Norquay, was a stakeholder in it for a time. Um, the siftings ran for about four years. I don't know really what it looked like as a paper because there's no existing copies of it in the province. Yeah. So who knows? But it would make sense that this guy is a journalist if he's going to spend all of this time compiling for sure all of these records and all of these notes. And like, it's for a booklet from 1894 fairly succinct. Like, I didn't have a hard time understanding hmm. it by any account. Yeah. And it would occasionally take breaks to step back and be like, well, here's what this means. Oh. Here's the issue with, like, this Raymond thing, or, like, cool. here's what would normally happen in this scenario. Yeah. But... So, like, it's meant for the general public. Yeah, it's meant for the public to consume. I'm not sure how many people, like, read it, or <laughs> yeah. how it got distributed, because it doesn't come up in the paper so much, so it's mm -hmm. unclear what would have been done with this. Yeah. But it is published. But it does also miss a couple of things. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't know... For either because the report wasn't publicly accessible... Uh, Brooks did not know that Fogg had reported on drainage issues a month before the cellar flooded. Okay. So, like, that's not in there. It's just, whoops, the cellar flooded. Yeah. Not that people had been, like, actually aware of that being an issue beforehand. Hmm. And it didn't report that there had been a couple public spats between Barber and Fogg. Yeah. In front of City Hall. <laughs> and the booklet is also um, fairly pro, or not pro-Barber, but more anti-council than pro-Barber. Oh, okay. Anti-Barber. So, the point of it is that... Whatever Barber had done, Brooks believes the city has made a fool of itself. Hmm. So after all of this reporting, there's a summary at the very end where he tries to summarize his opinions on the matter and opens, From the very first, the city council appears to have bungled the matter. No matter what may be said against the architect, admitting for argument's sake that all said to his detriment is true, the fact still remains that the members of the council of 1883 and 1884, so far as the building of the civic offices concerns, have acted more like incapable children than intelligent men. Well, you know, he's not <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So the booklet ends after Barbara and Barbara get dismissed from the project, and it promises an update once one is available. I can't find any any evidence of that existing. Right. But there may have been some intention to follow through, but nothing happens. So you said this guy was from a paper. Possibly. He was a reporter for the Winnipeg Siftings that ran okay. from about 1884 to 1888. So maybe there were updates in there that we. There just... might have been. Yeah, I'd love to oh. go, like find a copy of it somewhere and check yeah. it out. But that would, I think, require going to a different city. This is an issue actually that a lot of our primary sources are only in like Ottawa. Yeah. So before, when I was prepping for this episode, I did email the archives because they're listed as having a copy of the Winnipeg Siftings in their collection. Oh, yeah. And the last time I had gone in to look at a paper in the archives, <laughs> unfortunately, what they had instead of the paper itself was a note someone had taken for research on the paper. Right. So it was just Same. like, on December 1st, here is the headline of this paper, and yeah, like, here are the articles. So it was very difficult from like a research perspective, and I emailed to be like, is the sifting that, <laughs> or is it a paper? And it was are, notes. Are you tricking me again? I was not tricked this time. <laughs> but yeah, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of these papers are held in collections outside of the city, like... yeah. The town topics the paper I wanted to look at first is in McGill, in oh, Montreal. Yeah. I'm not going to Montreal anytime soon. I can't afford to do that. No. And also, like, it's just a paper. It's fine. Yeah. But yeah, I'm curious about what the siftings looks like and what, like, Brooks was like as an editor and a reporter. Mm-hmm. 
Because the most I can find about him in other papers that he would occasionally go on like press tours. Like he did a tour of the new sewer system when it opened. He did a book tour okay. somewhere in Portage La Prairie for a little bit. Yeah. Like he seems to have like gone around and been a fairly prolific writer and public yeah. speaker. There's not a whole lot known about him today. Right. So who knows what happens there. Hmm. But this means that the booklet misses all of the other stuff that happens once Barber and Barber are fired. Yes. Because the building's still not finished is the thing. Yeah. So what point is it at? It's unclear. It seems like they're getting ready to put the roof up because okay. the roof is under construction. Okay, right. And there were there were some issues with that before. It's unclear what the issues were with the roof. I think it may have something to do with like drainage. Okay. It's so, like when snow falls on the building where it goes or like the metal or the material goes on the roof. Okay. Unclear what the full issue was. I didn't understand a lot of Fox report in the specifications because yeah. my background is not construction, <laughs> especially 1880s construction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've omitted a lot of talk about like the difference between Ohio stone and some other type. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't think anyone would find it interesting. No. Or it wouldn't be fun for most people. That one stone person out there, I'm very sorry. <laughs> Write to us and we'll send you the, I'll the send primary you the, sources. I have all the notes. If anyone wants to read about Ohio Stone, <laughs> I've got the notes. I also have other notes about radiators. Oh, great. Which I did not go into. Um, but once Barbara and Barbara are fired, the city hires on James Chisholm as the new architect. Okay. You might remember him as the guy who came third oh, in the contest. Right, so right, he right. comes back. And here's a fun fact. Uh... Wheeler had worked for Chisholm's firm. So oh. Wheeler and Chisholm knew each other and okay. had worked together for at least a year or two at this point. So they maybe won't write angry letters to each other. They don't. That's nice. <laughs> but Chisholm does encounter a new problem immediately. Okay. So the contractor is still Augustus Ponton. And Ponton does not like Chisholm. Hmm. And either accidentally or deliberately locks him out of the building on his first <gasps> day of work. That's so mean. He claims it's an accident. And that like... He showed up too late and I locked the door, but it happens possibly more than once. Oh, jeez. And at this point, Ponton also states that he refuses to recognize Chisholm as the new architect. It's something to do with, like, the contract Weird. he signed where, like, in Ponton's contract, he reported to Barber and Barber, and oh. it specified Barber and Barber, not the architect. Gotcha. So that Barber and Barber aren't there, Ponton doesn't really care. It's like, you're not the boss of me? Yeah, basically. So there's some tension in that. And then That's apparently so Ponton's men start taking material from City Hall to use it on, on his other projects. So like oh. stones being removed from the site and used on their buildings. Huh. Oh, Which no. is part of like the concern with all of the steel that was ordered, right? Is that right. if you order too much, you can then funnel stuff the city paid for into other projects and then mm -hmm. not pay for as much of it, essentially. Right. So um, the project that might have been on is the Clements Block, which is where Bijou Park is in the exchange today. Oh. It was one of the old theaters in the city. And apparently, according to Chisholm, Ponton would usually have about two to three men on site to give the appearance of work. <laughs> so he's just got some guys goofing off to look like they're working, but nothing is happening. So, so actually, that's funny, because I was going to ask, like, why do you think the public was so worked up about this? And is it because, like, stuff was coming out in the papers? Or is it that when you went by, it looked like it was not happening? I mean, probably both, right? Like, yeah. you hear all these reports, and then you go by the building, because it's, like, in the warehouse district, people are going yeah. through there for work every day. And then you walk past this vacant lot, and there's just <laughs> three guys, like, moving stone around. <laughs> and this building is, like, potentially over budget. That's taxpayer money going into this that is now yeah. going to cost them more, so... I feel like these kind of building projects can often become, like, political disasters, hey? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's lucky for people in Winnipeg at this time is that elections are really short. So, like, yeah. no mayor's term is going to be horrific and ruined. And most mayors only serve one term and then do a different job for a bit instead. Mm -hmm. You have, like, a businessman coming in for a term and then stepping back to run his business. And then, like, two years later coming back as mm -hmm. mayor. It happens all the time. 
But yeah, this whole thing is like flying out of hand. Ponting gets fired, is replaced by um, a okay. man named A. McBain. There's not a whole lot on him. He doesn't cause as many problems as any of the other ones do. He just does the job. So that's our third third contractor, contractor now. and technically our second architect if we don't want to count Wheeler. Wheeler and the other guy they hired before to investigate the drawings. Right. W.W. Banning and A.P. Yeah. Cameron. So there's been a lot of people involved in this project. Yes. Most of whom probably didn't need to be. Yeah. Arguably. <laughs> so the city is still desperately trying to figure out how they were scammed. They still don't know what happened. Huh. They think Barbara was responsible. They can't prove it. And they suggest hiring more architects no. to report on the plans. <laughs> Except the city offers them a rate that's too low and they refuse to do it. What? Oh. Yes, they have architects in mind. Yeah. And they offered them and they're like, we wouldn't do it for that amount. Oh. So the city's not willing to pay them enough to do the job. But that was the problem in the first <laughs> place. Uh, okay, so this is something that my dad does. Not with architects. <laughs> He's not, like, but, lowballing architects left and right. No, but every time we need to buy something, he will first buy the cheapest version of the thing, mm. which inevitably breaks. <laughs> yeah. And then he has to buy, like, the slightly better version of the thing. And every time I'm like, if you just bought the good curtain rod in the first place, you could have had the best one. Yep. <laughs> for the same price. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. So, the theme of 1885 is lawsuits. That is what happens for <laughs> most of the year. <laughs> Like, construction trucks along, but pretty slowly. Chisholm and McBain don't cause a lot of problems. They just get the job done. But um, despite being fired, Barber and Ar Barber are not done with the project. They write to council saying that they've breached the contract, which probably, yes. And that because they still ha they're still working, they've canceled the plaster work. <laughs> so, like, because through some technicality, they might still be involved. Okay. So... Barbara and Barbara continue to do stuff for oh. a little bit, including canceling work that was supposed to be done. Oh, no. So they couldn't have, like, calling someone and being like, yeah, you know how the city needs catering? They don't anymore. <gasps> oh. So they're doing that. Yeah. Very professional. And um, some of this backfires because the Barbers also try and hire someone after they've been fired to do more work and then try and sue the city for not paying the workers. <laughs> the city wins that case. <laughs> That's very silly. <laughs> It's a weird plan. Like, okay, but also imagine showing up to City Hall being like, well, you hired me to do some, some plaster work. And they're like, we have no idea who you, <laughs> you are. What are you doing here? <laughs> they don't work for us. No. So Barbara and Barbara then sue the city for their prize money and their commission, which they still have not gotten. Okay, so probably they should get that. Yeah, like part of the issue comes in that um, Barbara and Barbara, because they have not been paid, have not been making money, meaning they could not pay their taxes. Oh, no. Which in turn means they have been charged money for not paying their taxes. Oh. <laughs> so like, there is some, like, genuine financial risk for the barbers involved. Yeah. And they've done a lot of annoying things. But they also still haven't been paid. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not great. And then uh, Dewar is taken to court by a lumber supplier who he never paid. And then Barber provides evidence against Dewar in 1885. <laughs> And then DeWar sued later by a guy who helped excavate the project. I don't know how those cases go. They only appear very briefly in, like, the court reports mm -hmm. in 1895. But um, there is a fairly incredible report that comes out in June of 1885, a year after construction begins, where council debates on what to do with the building. Right. It's still not finished. Work has been slow. And they're trying to decide if they want to spend money to fix the building and make it good, or just finish the project and leave it be so it's no longer an eyesore. <laughs> 
Um, most of the aldermen want to fund stuff like street repairs instead. Right. And this debate continues until August, when the Free Press reports it would cost around 50000 more to finish the building. Oh, gee. Like, that's that's more than half of the original Yeah. 11000 of that is just for the exterior. Ugh. So, like, things are not looking good. Yeah. <laughs> financially. And then one alderman suggests that you leave the building as a monument to the extravagance of those who have been responsible for it. <laughs> so just... Yeah, leave that half-finished building there as a monument to the past. I don't know. Like, well, we can't we can't do that, but I understand the point. Yeah. Because, like, theoretically, it is, it's not quite a functional building, but there is, like, a roof. Yeah. You could still go inside of it. Yeah. It's like a, you have to learn from your mistakes, young man. Yeah. Like. yeah. But that's a very large mistake Stick. right on yeah. Main Street there. But can you imagine if for, like, years and years there's a half-finished building... And they're like, we left this here because we made mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> like, eventually someone would have had to do something with it. Yeah, I mean, for one, it's a huge legal issue to have city-owned property that's vacant like that's that, right? True. Like, if it's not properly maintained or locked. Yeah. If someone gets hurt in the building, that's a lawsuit. <sighs> yeah, but then on the other hand, like, if you are spending an additional $50,000 to finish this building and not paving streets, I feel like you're going to have people being like, what's the deal with the mayor and city council? Why feeling are you like, spending this much money on a vanity project at this yes, point, right? a like, vanity project or, like, this, like, extravagant building you're going to work in. When we could use streets that we don't fall into. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it's a huge debate. You can see why people are so, like, torn up on what to do or how yeah. to handle it, especially because the project has been such a public disaster. Yeah. Like, everyone in Winnipeg knows what's gone wrong with this. Yeah. They're acutely aware of the project, and if they make a wrong move, they will hear about it. <laughs> so, what's interesting about all of this, though, is people are using City Hall's exterior. That's moderately functional. Okay. The building looks okay. Right, so it's, it's fine for a photo shoot. <laughs> yeah, basically. So, um, they put up the volunteer monument, which is dedicated to, I believe, the people who died at the Battle of Batoche. In 1895. Okay. One of Wheeler's sons died in that battle. Hmm. And it's put up in front of City Hall. There's a parade to celebrate. And the governor general gives a speech there. You cannot wow. go inside that building. Oh my god. But it is used as like a public showpiece. So the monument is there. They're, they're putting up statues. Outside of the building. And they're like, oh, we can't go in there. Like, what if we just leave it? Yeah. Huh. So this continues until January of 1886. <laughs> They're tied up in lawsuits. They can't afford to do anything else. They just wait. Yeah. And then in early 1886, a member of council points out that it would be embarrassing if a bunch of new immigrants arrived to Winnipeg and realized that City <laughs> Hall has been incomplete for two years due to the lack of money. <laughs> and then one alderman writes, he would rather have a monument to the city's inability standing there. So he wants people to come there and be like, this is where you've moved. This is the city's folly. <laughs> Winnipeg has, again, been an official city for about 12 years. We are not that old. And, and we've already made this massive mistake. <laughs> we've already made a huge mistake and seemingly given up. Yeah. <laughs> which is a fascinating turn of events for like, we're 12 years in. We're new. We're fresh. We're exciting. That's funny, because, yeah, I often think about this time as, like, oh, a time when we, like, could get things well, done. Well, it's Winnipeg's boom like, period. Yeah. It's the heyday. We're growing so quickly, and there's big hopes. But then it turns out, actually, no. A lot of people are very tired already. <laughs> <laughs> so, by spring of 1886, work is kind of underway again. And then, in July of 1886, guess who comes back? Oh, no. Is it Charles Barber? It's Charles Barber. No, He's Charles. back. Go away. He writes three letters in the span of two weeks, each claiming that James Chisholm is defrauding the city through funneling money and deliberately damaging good materials. Oh, my God. 
Chisholm then writes an eight-page letter in response explaining how he how he made everything and like called several statements false. And then in one of his letters, Barber accuses Chisholm of stealing machinery from a contractor. And Chisholm is quick to point out that as far as he can tell, the machinery was used from some tinsmithing going on when Ponton was still the contractor. Yeah. So it may have been Ponton doing something to annoy Chisholm and, like, claiming theft. And, like, they gave the machinery back. Yeah. So it wasn't stolen for good. It was that someone left it in the building. Okay. they're like, oh, we'll have this back. We're done. So Barbara's trying to get Chisholm fired. It doesn't seem like Chisholm's doing any wrong work. Yeah. By all accounts, most of what he's doing seems standard. There's no complaints. They haven't hired five people to investigate his work. (laughs) I mean, that's a good start already. Yep. So it's pretty quiet in 1886. Uh, City doesn't want to spend a lot on the building. There's not money for it. But things truck along until City Hall is finally completed. Okay, with they almost did do it. no fanfare. Oh. There is a very tiny report in the free press that covers the opening as follows. Three months ago, if there was one place more than another which citizens did not care to gaze upon, it was the city square. The uncompleted city hall with failing steps, broken windows, and a general look of neglect. The rough, uneven ground made the dumping place of all sorts of rubbish. The worn-out platform all combined made it an eyesore. Now, however, it presents a very different appearance, and citizens are beginning to point it out to strangers with pride. The volunteer monument has been erected, city hall completed, and now presents an imposing exper- uh, appearance. Okay, so it's up. Two years later, it is done. People are still suing Ponton for unpaid oh, labor. And Barber files a $50,000 defamation <gasps> suit against the city of Winnipeg. This time okay. it's settled and Barber receives the prize money. He is still owed. Oh, jeez. Can I, okay, can I tell you my theory about how Barber thought this was going to go? Yeah. Because I don't, I, I don't think that he thought all that was going to, I mean, obviously. No, yeah. Why did he do that? I think what he thought was going to happen was that they were going to get this money. He would slip a little extra to this contractor yeah. to get that low bid in. Yep. Um, maybe steal a little bit of supplies yeah. on the side to make a little bit, yeah. bit of that back. But I don't think he planned like maybe a grand fraud. I think he just thought he wasn't going to make a ton out of it. Yeah. So that he, his name would be like big. Yeah. Because, yeah, um, like, building the new city hall for an up-and-coming city is a pretty big deal. Yeah, so, like, slightly shady, but not, like, super shady, necessarily. Yeah. Um, And then his name would be big, and then he'd get a bunch of expensive building contracts. Yeah. Um, But then they realized that he was doing slightly shady things, and it turns out you can't just build a building for yeah. no money. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't pay him. And they didn't yeah. pay him, and so his plan went down the tubes. And he just got angry about it. Yes. And, like, some of it, fairly, I would also be annoyed if I had not been paid for yes. two years. Well, and so, like, that screws up his whole plan if his plan is to, like, slide extra money to the yeah. contractor. And it does just also kind of turn out that he's kind of a jerk sometimes. Yeah. Which doesn't, like, help. He doesn't look good, right? No. Even if he was doing, like, some minor fraud, which, to be fair, that happened a lot. Yeah. Like, Barbara is not the only one doing this in Winnipeg. It is arguably the theme of Winnipeg construction throughout the early 1900s. Um, we talked about it with the legislative building. It happens even still to this day, kind of. Like, yeah. it's not unusual. Um, there have been, like, a ton of lawsuits over the LEAF, the new conservatory yeah. building. It happens all the time. Like, none of this is that weird. What is weird is that no one can figure out what happened, that Barbara was so defensive, and, yeah. like, the public scandal this became, and how early it happened into Winnipeg's, like, life yes. as a city. It's <laughs> bizarre but beyond like it's mostly done the building is there there's still some kinks to work out Mm -hmm. they're testing the heating systems in 1887 to figure out what will be the cheapest way to heat the building whether it's like wood or coal Mm -hmm. but that is our city hall until 1964 
But there are um, recurring attempts to get rid of the building. Okay. Across the 1900s. <laughs> so part of the issue is that Winnipeg grows really quickly. Right. So basically we start out as a city with a couple thousand people. Um, in 1886, there's 20,000 people in Winnipeg, roughly. By 1911, there's 130,000 residents. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's astronomical growth. Yeah. So, City Hall is no longer big enough. Departments are being spread out across the city in a way that's not, like, feasible for work. Right. So, there's only, whatever, 33 rooms. It's not enough. Yeah. And, also, like, City Hall also was so over budget. It mm-hmm. um, wound up costing them around $130,000 in the end. It's not great for, like, a new city to be that much in the red. Well, here's the thing. They couldn't afford to do it, so they took out loans. Uh Uh-oh. Which they were still paying off for 60 years. (gasps) They amassed 200... Six six zero? Six zero. They finished paying it off in the 1940s. Oh, my God. It amassed over (gasps) $200,000 in interest (laughs) alone. Oh, what a pick. So, like, by all accounts, it is a mess. Council's tired of the building pretty early on by... Like, 1900 into 1965, they're always trying to get the building torn down and go somewhere different into a new and better building. Yeah. So the demolition in 1965 maybe shouldn't be, like, a huge surprise, considering it was an active attempt from council over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. There's also a rumor at one point that City Hall lost the cornerstone, (laughs) which I don't think happened, but there is a a rumor that, like, well, when they built it, they lost it instantly. (laughs) So... Does this make any sense to you? Do you understand what happened here? I I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. It's very yeah. strange. It's a whole big thing. But, like, we're still not done with Barber. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's done with City Hall, but he's not done in Winnipeg yet. Okay. Which is impressive. So, like, James Chisholm works in Winnipeg until 1916. He retires to California. Has a very successful career. Wheeler does Delnavert. He founds the Manitoba Association of Architects, dies in 1917. These two go on to have great, successful careers. His Barber's career is basically over in Winnipeg following this. I mean, yeah. Obviously, right? You don't get publicly fired by the city, build possibly the greatest disaster of the decade, and then keep getting work. Um, and, like, also probably saving a bunch of angry letters did not save you in yeah. that. Yeah, no. But he's also arrested for bribing a voter in 1897. <laughs> <laughs> bribing a voter to vote for what? Uh, some conservative MP he okay. wanted in government. Like, it wasn't a big thing, yeah. but he did get caught doing it. <sighs> Why? But then after that, he leaves town. He goes to Duluth, Minnesota with his brothers. They start up Barber and Barber there. Mm-hmm. It does moderately well. Um, Earl runs the practice in Superior, Wisconsin. And Earl Barber does very well for himself. He is a well-respected architect out in huh. Superior. Okay. Suggesting to me that the issue may have just been Charles. Yeah. <laughs> so, after all of this, uh, Charles Barber does come back to Winnipeg in the early 1890s to work on the McIntyre block on Main Street. This is uh, right next to the Palomino Club today. It's that okay. big parking lot. It used to be a sort of eccentric-looking office building. Hmm. It was kind of out of date by the time it had been built because Barber's style was now no longer in vogue. Uh. We are shifting less or away from like the heavy ornamentation to more like simple brickwork. Right. Was kind of the trend things were going. So his building is dated instantly. Mm-hmm. But um, after all of this, he gets into um, inventing things. Okay. Like he, he, <laughs> no, he does invent like a successful fireproof door. He files patents okay. for a number of things. He does okay for himself in this. Um, I somehow just that is not surprising to me. He just <laughs> seems like someone who would be an inventor. Yeah, like he's like, well, I'm done here. I'm you gonna... have to be a little crazy. Yeah. So he becomes an inventor for a little bit. And then he moves to Montreal with his wife, Sarah, in 1902. 
And then, on May 1st, 1903, the Winnipeg Tribune publishes an article with this headline, Arrest of C.A. Barber, a woman who says she is his wife also in the toils. Remarkable story told to the police. Okay, excellent. So Barber is arrested again. Mm-hmm. But this time, it's alleged that Charles's wife, Sarah, lured a Montreal grocer, Adelphis Brousseau, to an apartment complex, where Charles and her start asking him to sign over $13,000 and <laughs> sign a declaration admitting to improper relations with his wife. <gasps> Brousseau is held captive for 25 hours before escaping <laughs> and rushing to the police. Oh my god. But here is the kicker. The police were already on the lookout for them, as apparently this is not the first time Barber had done something like this. <gasps> something like this? <laughs> the police are looking for him, and yeah. it so happens that... Brousseau gets loose and goes right. to the police and they catch him. So the Tribune at the time alleges that Barbara was known to have taken a prominent part in some shady transactions and a woman who poisons a clairvoyant was associated with him. <gasps> I cannot find anything about this that, and I'm so oh sorry. <laughs> I tried so hard. Do you think it that was also his wife? It must have been. It must right? have been. Who's like his partner in crime. His weird clairvoyant con man wife. Who, like, also pretends to have had inappropriate relations with him? The grocer, yeah. What? So, also, $13,000 is a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot, yeah. It's a huge scam. I don't know that a grocer has that much money. Brousseau was apparently fairly wealthy. Okay. So, like, he did have the money. He was fairly well-known. Yeah. During the paper, published his full name. and was like, he's a prominent grocer in oh, town. Yeah. I think everyone knew who he was. Um, It'd it's be also- like if John Safeway was kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> Man, wouldn't that be incredible if, yeah. like, some deranged architect kidnaps John Safeway? <laughs> 10 out of 10. So it's also alleged that Barber had tried the same thing with his wife in Winnipeg and had gotten some money out of Winnipeggers here. Oh, my God. But the Tribune doesn't give any specifics, so right. it's sort of unclear. I like to imagine that was during the City Hall thing. He just, like, <laughs> during... to make money on the side. I mean, it may have been. Like, he was... Monday to Friday, he's working on the building. <laughs> and on the weekends, he's getting his wife to help scam other people. It's his side hustle. Yeah. But, like, realistically, he was in Winnipeg from about 1876 until 1887 when he leaves. Yeah. So, like, if he was doing this, it may have genuinely yeah. been during the City Hall disaster. <laughs> so, Brousseau's version of events is that he had been advertising a safe to sell. And uh, Sarah Barber calls his office and says she'll sell it for him for a commission. He agrees and goes to visit her apartment. She invites him and they sit down and have an interesting conversation. Hmm. And then, abruptly, Charles Barber bursts out of the wardrobe, <laughs> yelling, Now I have got you. I will teach you to act in this way with my wife. I will kill you. And then starts swinging both a revolver and a knife around. <laughs> like one in both. One in each hand. <laughs> Seemingly. And then, somewhere in the process, stabs Brousseau in the thigh. Oh, no. And once Brousseau starts begging for his life, Barber's like, I'll spare you for a ransom. Jeez. <laughs> he was... Oh, my God. So he goes to this woman's house, is having a conversation with her, and all this time, Barbara's just in, in the, the closet, <laughs> holding a knife and a gun, and just waiting. So Charles and Sarah then take his clothes and tie him up. They take his clothes? They take his clothes. Why? I don't know. And then they go to cash the check that Brousseau has given him. Well alone, he breaks free, finds most of his clothing, and jumps over the balcony to escape and goes to the police. He quickly tells all of the banks not to cash his checks, and then goes. And then Sarah and Charles are arrested, and both plead not guilty. Of note, their daughters are with them. Their four daughters <gasps> what? are like still like within the age of living at home, and they're just yeah. sent to live with relatives in Brockville, Ontario, where they stay with family friends for the rest oh of this. Wow. Um. 
I feel that if you're going to blackmail someone, taking the money by check is maybe not the best plan. Yeah, like, it's a bold step. It seems real traceable is the issue. Yeah, it does. And, like, I guess the shame of, like, admitting to an affair yeah. might have stopped some people, especially if they're married. Yeah. But Brousseau did not seem to have the same hesitation as some others might have. Yeah. So the trial takes place in June, and it starts to cause some unease both in Winnipeg and in Duluth. Okay. Because... There is a rumor that people in Winnipeg and Duluth may be called upon to, te- called upon to testify against oh. Barber. And if anyone that they had swindled in town came forward with this, it might damage their reputation, admitting that they had been swindled or almost like had an affair with Sarah Barber that right. would look really bad for them. Mm-hmm. So there was like a significant amount of unease that people in Winnipeg who are fairly well respected huh. and wealthy would have to go to Montreal to testify that they had been swindled out of however much money yeah. by the Barbers. So... Uh, our police chief, uh, McRae, believed that people in Winnipeg and Duluth would be able to help the case if they were willing to talk. He just didn't mm. think anyone would be willing to. Yeah. Which is kind of what happens. And after the story breaks, there are a couple of different versions of events coming out because all three individuals testify in court about what they think happened. Okay. <laughs> and all give different stories. So, Brousseau would later say that Sarah invited him to a different apartment earlier and confessed his love, her love for him at first sight. <laughs> and he'd rebuked her, but then agreed to go back to her place later again. Okay. Sarah also claimed that Charles was terribly ill, and that's why he wasn't around, (laughs) and she was so lonely. Brousseau would also admit that Sarah had seduced him, and they were in the process of disrobing when Barbara jumped out of the closet. Yeah. So, Brousseau admits to visiting Sarah a number of times and lying to his family about his whereabouts the night of the incident. (laughs) So, he may have been hoping to seduce Sarah Barbara. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's fine. Whatever. (laughs) So, Barbara's testimony, given a day later, is that he had been suspicious of his wife for some time before the incident. She'd been leaving and, like, getting ready at weird times, so he thought something was amiss. Mm. It was trying to figure out what was going on. So, we f- at one night when she goes out, he follows her, sees her go into the house where the incident took place. So, it's not their house. It's not their house. It's a half-abandoned f- home they find. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, an abandoned house she goes into, I guess. Weird. So... I guess Barbara knows that's where she goes to hang out. And in his story, he then waits for her to get ready to go. Yeah. Once Sarah leaves, he then goes to the house. He hides two pairs of handcuffs, a baseball bat, and a gun in the closet. And then just waits for his wife to come home with someone. Huh. So Barbara describes the events this way. I jumped out of the closet and they both screamed in fear. I handcuffed them and tied them together with straps. She pleaded with me not to kill him, and he pleaded for his life. I took out a pocket knife, which I had intended to maim him. (laughs) The blade of the knife made a wound. Made a wound. Made a wound. I didn't do it. The blade did. Yes. (laughs) I ordered my wife downstairs and took Brousseau's clothing and locked him in the closet. I went downstairs to my wife, and in the most pitiful manner, she pleaded to be allowed to go home to the children. I told her to tell me the truth. I listened to her story yesterday, and she told me the same story. I had a small camera snapshot with me, and I made the two together. I had taken a picture, but it was spoiled. Jeez. So according to Barber, it was Brousseau's idea to pay the settlement. To get out of it. Okay. And to prevent Barber from killing him. Yeah. And Sarah agreed to prevent Barber from suing for divorce. (laughs) But no one believes them. No. Funnily enough. And Charles and Sarah are sentenced to seven and three years in prison, respectively. Um, even after they're charged, Sarah tries to claim that Charles is innocent, and a newspaper called her attempt quite pathetic. <laughs> huh. So they're reunited after Charles is released from jail. They retire to British Columbia. Barbara dies in 1915. Huh. And 
that is the story of Winnipeg's ginger, gingerbread city hall and the people involved in it. Wow. Okay. It is quite the saga. A lot happens. Began with contract negotiations, ended with a stabbing. Love it. Well, a guy was hit with a blade. Oh, he, a blade made a wound. <laughs> he didn't do it. Yeah. Sabrina, did you know when you sat down to research this episode that it, it had all of this insanity involved? I was or? aware of some of it. Okay. So, like, I knew it ended with Barber being arrested for extortion. <laughs> because when you talk about Charles Barber, that's the one thing he... Like, the end of his story is always, oh, and also he was arrested in Montreal for extortion. <laughs> but the details are always a little like, well, like, he kidnapped a grocer and stabbed him. And it's less like, well, this is a convoluted scam they had. Right. Yeah, his I wife knew... would, like, seduce a woman. I knew the very basic story. I did not know all of that. <laughs> like, the scheming that happened. But I had started to do research into this for, like, a tour stop. Okay. Years ago. So I had all of the sources just like waiting for something to happen with them. But what I found out when I was doing research is that for a tour stop, a lengthy contract scandal is not the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but now that I have a podcast where everyone has to suffer through my horrible whims, <laughs> now finally my chance to use all of this. I can't find it now, but I think it was MHS had um, a profile on Charles Barber that began with something like, um, architect and whatever and convicted extortionist <laughs> and yeah. like that's often how you hear about it right yeah it's just like well he was the architect but also and it's like what what do you mean convicted, convicted extortionist <laughs> oh yeah he's a lot well, I'll see if I can track it down. You could also say failed extortionist. Like yeah. Yeah. if you're convicted, then you then you failed it. Though he may thing. he may have succeeded in previous uh, uh, attempts. Yeah. It seems. Yeah, like. it seems like the rumor is that he was successful a few times. Yeah, either in Winnipeg <laughs> or in Duluth. The issue is that no one was willing to testify, so we don't really know. Right. Like the reality of all of this is, it's one of those things where, like, who knows what happened? Yeah. This sounds like a Coen Brothers movie. So I was telling <laughs> Alex about this. We've been saying that a lot of Winnipeg history yeah. sounds like a Coen Brothers movie. Well, it's movie. the key thing where it's a bunch of people who are a little too confident for their skill set then get in <laughs> over their head and refuse to back down, which is like the whole thing with Coen Brothers movies. Like Willie yeah. Mace Macy and Fargo sounds like this barber guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bunch of people who believe a little too much in themselves <laughs> and then refuse to back down when things go wrong. Yeah. So uh, if the Coens want to come and make a movie about Winnipeg, <laughs> boy, do we have ideas for them. Oh, I found it. It was on Canadian Biography, and it says, Barber, Charles Arnold, architect, inventor, and convicted extortionist. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, for, this is a weird thing. So like, this is the big monument for Winnipeg as a city. Like, yeah. When you think about Winnipeg in the golden days, you think of the Gingerbread City Hall. It's where the streetcar is tipped over in 1919. Yes. It's like an evocative building of Winnipeg's past. And it turns out it was a nightmare. What's really funny for me now is thinking about, like, maybe seeing old photos of it and wondering, like, was there even anything inside it then? Like, was it just an empty <laughs> I think exterior? So. so I found a picture of the Volunteer Monument in 1885, and yeah. the building looks okay. You yeah. can't tell if anything is inside of it or not. Yeah. But the windows aren't boarded up for that one. I'm assuming what happened is someone broke them at some point because it does tend to happen with vacant oh, buildings. Yeah. It's a weird city. <laughs> someone probably wants to break something. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, well, incredible. Thank you so much for uh, putting up with another one of my tangents to bizarre city politics of yeah. 150 <laughs> years ago. I hope everyone enjoyed this very strange dive. Maybe you understand a bit more about why City Hall was torn down in the 1960s. Why we needed a new one. It may have been time. Yeah. And if you want to see 
um, like pictures of the people involved or pictures of the building itself. There's not a lot of photos of construction, I think. Can you post a photo of the grasshoppers and the cornerstone? I will be posting a picture of the cornerstone grasshoppers. Thank Don't you. worry. You can check all of that out on our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and uh, Instagram as One Great History, and we're on Twitter as Number One Great History. If you'd like to hear more about some of the people in Winnipeg, bonus episodes about stuff like a woman who may have been Marilyn Monroe's secret mother. <laughs> or what? Uh, it's one of our Patreon episodes. Yeah. Or um, Alex's interview with UFO ufologist Chris Rutowski. You can check us out mm -hmm. on Patreon. It's only $5 a month to have access to all kinds of interesting bonus content, and also you help us pay for all of the time and research we put into this, and to help Nick put it up on all of our streaming services. So you can check us out at uh, patreon.com forward slash one great history. Thank you so much for listening. Happy one year anniversary. Yeah, we're a year old. That's crazy. <laughs>